0: Who is the spy on The Mandalorian? Welcome back to Nerdist News. I'm Dan Casey, and today we're delving into the latest episode of The Mandalorian. Titled The Spies, it was full of battles, betrayals, and a surprising amount of bot stuff. Yes. And as the episode's title suggests, there is a spy or two in our hero's midst. So who could it be? Do we have a spy? Well, we've got a theory and we'll break it all down for you in just a moment. Now, if you prefer to read all about it, we've got you covered over on Nerdist.com with Michael Walsh's article. But to talk about this in detail, we have to spoil what happened. So if you don't wanna get spoiled, leave now, unless, wait, do you want spoilers? Yes. No, this is not a good idea. Come on. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Chapter 23 was a marked improvement over last week's episode in terms of overall cohesiveness. It definitely still feels overstuffed at times, but everything felt like it was building towards the climactic final moments. With that said, I really did enjoy this episode as a whole, especially with all the juicy mysteries and the various plot hooks they teased. And after a season of Beskar Foil Hat theorizing, we finally got some answers to major questions this episode. We learned that Moff Gideon's apparently been chilling in his weird lair on man. Mandalore with a bunch of Imperial Super Commandos. He's been building Beskar alloy dark trooper armor, which explains his rescue mission. And despite his claim that he isn't obsessed with cloning, his secret facilities on Navarro and Mandalore both have backed tanks full of briny test subjects. That with his admiration for the work of cloners seems pretty sus to me. We know that he's an ardent Mandalorian cosplayer and cultural appropriator, but what's he really researching out there beyond the sick Sith science of Palpatine's Snoke project? Well, more on that in just a moment. We also learned that Moff Gideon's part of the Shadow Council, a group of Imperial Remnant leaders who are pretending to be disorganized warlords. What they're really doing is orchestrating the return of Grand Admiral Thrawn to be what the Ahsoka trailer deemed as the heir to the empire. But for the time being, as Gideon points out, Thrawn is nowhere to be seen. We know that Ahsoka is hunting Thrawn down and her upon in this series, which debuts this August. So is Thrawn playing the long game and is he lying low? Is he still trapped in deep space thanks to Ezra Bridger and those space whales? Only time will tell. We know he's coming, but in the meantime, it's giving Moff Gideon a big chance to seize more power among these fractious fascists. One of the other members of the Shadow Council is Captain Pelion, Thrawn's right-hand man who's appearing for the very first time in live action. Another is General Hux's father, Brendel Hux, played by Donald Gleason's real-life brother, Brian Gleason. Hux is heading up Project Necromancer, and this sounds like the official name for both resurrecting the Empire and Palpatine's cloning initiative to make a viable body into which he can effectively return from the dead himself. Somehow Palpatine returned. We also learned in this episode Grogu's very first words. No. Okay, maybe not what we expected, but thanks to those enterprising Anzellans, we now have Neon Grogu's Evangelion. And unlike Gendo Ikari, Mando does not want his baby to get in that damn robot. Maybe when he's older. No. What do you mean, no? No. With that said, the episode also raised questions in equal measure. Most importantly, the question of its title, who is the other spy? No spy. No spy. The episode is titled The Spies, plural, yet we only see one obvious double agent, the supposedly reformed Imperial comms officer, Elia Kane. At the outset of the episode, she meets an Imperial probe droid in a dark alleyway amid the cyberpunk Streets of Coruscant to report on the Mandalorian situation to Moff Gideon. And quick side note, Imperial Probe droids, way bigger than I expected, especially compared to Empire Strikes Back. Was that the baby version that Han killed or something? I don't know, how did this thing remain undetected on Coruscant though? Maybe it's also part of the Amnesty program as well, like those other Separatist droids? But back to the matter at hand. Elliot Kane is only one spy, and considering the amount of betrayals and backstabbing that happens in this episode, she can't be the only informant that Gideon has snitching on Mando movements. Did we make contact with a spy or not? So who's the spy? I'm the spy. No, Hux, not you. In our opinion, there's only one viable candidate for who this Mandalorian mole could be. And it's someone that you might never expect. Folks, I'm talking about the armorer. I knew it. No, you did not. I know, I know, she's a trusted leader. She seems to prize the survival of the Mandalorian people and their foundlings above all else. But she was also someone instrumental in leading the combined forces of the Mandalorian people into a deadly trap. So consider what we actually know about the Armorer. I mean, she's been acting a little bit strange lately, yeah? She broke with her cult's deeply held beliefs when she instructed Bo Katan to remove her helmet and declared that she didn't have to follow the way because Bo walks in both worlds. You know, like Blade, but with a jetpack instead of one liners about ice skating. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. And it turned out to be the most elegant solution possible for Moff Gideon's Mandalorian problem, because Bo-Katan is uniquely positioned to be the only person able to unite these scattered Mandalorian people. And thanks to an assist from Din's disdain for the Darksaber, Bo was able to unite the clans and lead the Mandos like lambs to the slaughter. Thank you for gathering the Mandalorians into one place. But let's take things back a step even further. There was this prevailing notion that Mandalore could no longer support life, or that it was a cursed place following the Purge. When the Armorer tells Din the only way to atone for his sins is to bathe in the living waters beneath Mandalore, it feels like an impossible task, something you wouldn't be able to accomplish. So maybe this was to discourage Din from actually going there, and maybe discovering Moff Gideon's massive Imperial base. Of course, Din and Bo-Katan prove the planet is in fact inhabitable, which threw a major wrench in their plan. So if the Mandalorians aren't going to avoid their homeworld, what's the next best option? Get them all in one place and lead them into a giant trap. And who can lead all these people? Bo-Katan. That's why the Armorer decides to manipulate her in her newfound belief in the Mandalorian myths. When Bo made her big inspirational speech on Navarro and we got that kind of I am Spartacus moment, the biggest surprise of all joining the advanced scouting party was the armorer herself. Typically, she doesn't really participate in any of these away missions. Her place has usually been leading the covert from wherever they're hiding out. And as Michael Walsh pointed out on Nerdist.com, there's a great explanation for this. The Armorer is a living chronicle of Mandalorian history and culture. If she were to die rescuing some kid from a big-ass bird or fighting Gorian Shard's pirate crew, the Mandalorians would lose a major lifeline to their culture. It's to the point the Armorer volunteering to come with surprised even Bo-Katan herself. But the biggest red flag of all is when the armorer conveniently excuses herself to take the wounded back to the fleet right before the Empire's arrival. The moment is expertly edited to make you think that she's going to emerge from the Mandalorian atmosphere, which conveniently jams comm satellites and find the fleet completely destroyed by Gideon's reinforcements. And that could still happen, but mostly it seems like she was trying to give herself an alibi and be conveniently off planet when Gideon sprang his trap. So why spend so much time building this palpable sense of dread only to leave us hanging? To emphasize the importance of the armorer leaving the scene of the crime, and to really drill down that she was in on it the whole time. And I mean, come on, folks, she is the armorer. She's someone who forges all of the Mandalorian armor and weapons, and she's someone with a deep connection and passion to Mandalorian culture. You'd think she'd wanna be there when they see and possibly ignite the great forge for the first time in a generation. So why would the Armorer be working for Moff Gideon of all people? Well, maybe in her eyes, he actually was the Mandalore after Bo-Katan surrendered to him as she admitted during dinner. Or maybe she struck a separate deal with him to spare their cult in exchange for working with the Empire on an ongoing basis. The Armorer leads the Children of the Watch. They are a cult of Mandalorian fundamentalists who survived by hiding out on the moon of Concordia. The Children of the Watch's hardline adherence to the Creed made deep divisions among the Mandalorian people and kept them fractured. That's something that would only help the Empire in their quest to rebuild and eliminate a powerful force that could stand against them. Now, we know the Children of the Watch are an offshoot of Death Watch. Death Watch was a Mandalorian terrorist group that was absorbed into Darth Maul's Shadow Collective. And while Death Watch ultimately splintered even further by joining the Mandalorian Resistance under Bo-Katan's leadership, others remained loyal to Maul and the Shadow Collective to the bitter end. Given the horns on the Armorer's helmet, which evokes Gar Saxon's Mando helmet and Maul's own Dathomirian biology, she could be someone with deep connections to Maul loyalists. And also consider for a moment, who else is rocking horns on his helmet this episode? Folks, Moff Gideon, that's who. So with all of that in mind, who could the Armorer actually be? Well, she could be someone we haven't met before, but given Dave Filoni's passion for bringing back Clone Wars characters in new contexts, it could potentially be someone like Rook Cast. Fans have speculated for years now, the Armorer could actually be Gar Saxon second in command, Rook Cast. And it might seem like a bit of a stretch given the Armorer's strict orthodoxy, but that could be a long-term ploy to lie low and plan her revenge against Bo-Katan. Because Bo beat her ass pretty badly during the Siege of Mandalore. We know from the Clone Wars that Rookcast is a power-hungry person with zero qualms about working with people associated with the Empire. So maybe she's now exploiting Mando fundamentalists to accrue the power she wants and working with Gideon to ensure that she comes out on top when all is settled. And in the meantime, what better way to lie low than by fostering a culture where it's forbidden to remove your helmet unless you're like eating soup in private. How do you eat when other people are around? You don't. Now, regardless of who the armorer actually is, it's clear that she's at least working with the Mando-obsessed Gideon for the time being. As for what consequences she may face next week, only time will tell, but if she is the spy, this is definitely not the way. But thanks to Paz Vizsla being an absolute giga-chad with a Gatling gun, Bo and many other Mandos did manage to escape. But with Din and Moff Gideon's Mitt Gideons, we're set up for a wild reversal of the season two finale next week. So does this mean we'll see Mecha Grogu force choke his way through the base? Yes. Will he feel even remotely guilty about it? No. Will he 3v1 those Praetorian guards? Yes. I sure hope so. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's our best theory for who the other spy could actually be. We'll have plenty of other deep dives for you in the days ahead over on Nerdist, but for now, tell us, what did you think of this episode? Who do you think the spy could be? Tell him we found our spy. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.